0: Welcome to Stafford Unplugged. This is season two. In this season, I've decided to focus on incredible women. You'll listen to entrepreneurs, business and corporate executives, journalists, authors, all human beings that are having an incredible impact and do so on a day-to-day basis. You'll hear me asking them some of those layman questions relative to their particular domain and their expertise. And just listen in on their incredible answers. Such a privilege, such an honor to bring you these individuals, these incredible women. Enjoy. Okay, we have Colleen. Is it Colleen Ebbett? Am I saying it right? You are. Okay, fantastic. So Colleen Ebbett. When I was looking at starting the series and I looked at all the names of all the women I wanted to have in season two, because season two is focusing on remarkable women and kind of showcasing remarkable women and showing that women are actually having quite impactful roles in the world, in South Africa and on the global stage. You were definitely one in that top 10. I thought, okay, I've got to get her on because we've met a couple of times and the times that we have met, I think the work that you do is quite impressive. And yeah, welcome. Thank you for making the time to be here today.
1: Thank you. No, I was really excited when you asked me, I think that I felt two things. I think when you asked me to be a part of this series on incredible women, the first was really empowered. And I think that when someone, I think for me, when someone believes in you or sees your potential more than you see in yourself, there's something really empowering about that. So first of all, thank you for doing that, for seeing the power and potential in women and those inspiring stories. And then the other was imposter syndrome. I thought, oh, <laughs> wait a second, like I'm not an incredible woman. Like, what? <laughs> you know, I know many incredible women, um, and have been inspired by many. I was like, but am I an incredible woman? And it made me think of uh, one of my favorite books is uh, The Odyssey mm-hmm. um, by Homer, and it opens with the line of, "Sing in me, muse, and through me, tell the story." And what I think is so interesting about that is, you know, this is one of the greatest orators is Homer. And it almost brings back to that. Does he have that self belief? Or is he still calling on someone else to be, you know, a conduit of of someone else's story or telling the story? And so, Hold on. Yeah, so I guess those were kind of the the sentiments were uh, empowered in a bit of imposter syndrome, but totally excited to talk to you again, Stafford.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, awesome. So one of the things I do notice with women in general, I'm gonna generalize here, and I'm saying it as a guy, so just whack me (laughs) back into the hole if you think I'm doing something here that's incorrect. But I find that most women, unlike men, men are very egotistical. They celebrate publicly, verbosely, verbally, outwardly their accomplishments. No matter how small or how big they believe in them fundamentally and they, you know, they just go at it in an almost an arrogant fashion. Whereas I find most women, and it's quite interesting, the most powerful woman that I've spoken to and you're one of them, still has a little bit of a hesitation to say, well, I don't know if it's me. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm qualified or I don't know if this is really the context within which I see myself. Why do you think that is?
1: I think we're maybe it's it's learned behavior i think that you're taught to be humble you're taught to be like in your box and have a place and you know i i think that both men and women we all have insecurities right and i think that it takes a lot of bravery <laughs> for better or worse to put yourself out there and feel like you know you're really owning it and that you deserve it and that there's not a chance that it might be taken away or slip away from you so i think there's almost this cautiously optimistic <laughs> sentiment but I do agree I think that a lot of men um are able to feel more empowered to put their place out there in the world more but I think that we're seeing that more and more with women and I think that's what makes this such an exciting time not just for me but I think that the next generation like probably I know you've mentioned you have you have daughters like yeah this is an, a new world order I think for the next generation so Hopefully, they'll be very powerful young women, but I do think that a lot of people do feel that kind of sentiment, like
0: they're not deserving or something. Yeah. Where do you find yourself right now? Where are you?
1: Yeah, so I'm in London right now. I'm American, but um, I'm actually Irish through my parents, but I um, grew up in the States, but I live in London, and um, yeah. It sounds busy. It is busy.
0: I heard that London's kind of a ghost town at the moment, but uh, it sounds busy
1: yeah um sorry if you hear like cars going by no something.
0: it's wonderful i love it, okay. it makes more real. yeah,
1: yeah. um yep yeah, it's still a bustling city of london
0: <laughs> and how have you found the lack of traveling i mean i know you when we met the last time your travel schedule was insane i think you got like the triple s's and a t i saw turkey in there <laughs> yeah. i saw south africa in there i saw switzerland in there and i think i saw yeah. sweden
1: yeah, exactly. So um I work for a foundation that focuses on inclusive economic growth and I cover Switzerland, Sweden, Turkey, South Africa, France. And yeah, I think the lack of travel has been a struggle for me. I love travel personally and professionally. I learn a lot when I travel. I build my network and meet people, understand the issues on the ground that we're trying to solve. Um it's really important in terms of context and connecting. So I have struggled with it, not being able to travel. But, you know, that's when I think we've all kind of adopted this new uh, digital age that we're all living in and finding other modes of connection through what we're doing right now, <laughs> a podcast yeah. or Zoom calls and things like that.
0: When I first met you, I think you had just you—you were pretty new in the role at JP Morgan, looking at kind of global philanthropy within the Samir focus. And just before then, you did quite a lot of work—governmental work. Is that right? Yeah. Was it Brexit?
1: (laughs) It was, yes. So I've had kind of a funny career path. I think I uh...
0: exactly. I was going to ask you, how do you jump from Brexit to global philanthropy?
1: Yeah. So when I graduated university, I always thought, okay, I want to be a banker. And I started working for a bank. I started working for JP Morgan as a banker and spent almost a decade there in the United States and in Switzerland, managing wealth for wealthy families, um, investments and loans and things like that, and really enjoyed it. But was always, you know, kind of grew up very socially aware and always knew that, service was always kind of part of my life. Like I always volunteered and always really enjoyed understanding social issues and trying to help out where I could. And I saw this kind of merger between investments and social purpose happening. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because that actually feels like that fits me perfectly. (laughs) I'm interested in in investments and what that can do um, for the world and for economies. But I'm, I'm certainly interested in the human experience and what can we do to improve lives. And If there's a merger of that happening, if there are businesses that are now tackling social challenges and those businesses need investments and support to grow, I'd love to be in that space. And um, so I started becoming a coach for social entrepreneurs and really enjoyed it, but never quite got my fix. So I uh, took a, a year sabbatical from JP Morgan to move to South Africa and work for an impact investor. And I was um, working with Mothers to Mothers and HIV AIDS charity and had a really eye-opening experience for many reasons and was not about to go back to my my banker job in Switzerland. Cool. So the UK government actually was kind of a leader in social impact investment And I spoke with that team. And sure enough, they were not looking for people with policy backgrounds. They were looking for people with kind of private sector backgrounds or banking backgrounds. So in some way, I feel like I certainly got lucky (laughs) because I definitely did not have any public policy background and joined the team as a policy advisor on social impact investments. Why did you think the UK was
0: a leader or is a leader in social impact investments?
1: So I think because they um, they took the philosophy that government cannot solve deep social issues alone. It takes government, private sector, and social sector to come together to solve deeply entrenched social issues. So that really opened them up in terms of a platform of collaboration where they were going to view investments, business communities, social sector... All as potential partners in tackling deep rooted social issues. So if you're dealing with homelessness, for example, as a policy issue, um, accommodation and finding a home for people is particularly challenging in really expensive places like, you know, London, let's say, or even England. Um, But it's even more challenging if you're looking at what they might deem as even more disadvantaged population groups. So if you're an ex offender, um, if you struggle with mental health issues or addiction, it's very difficult to maintain housing. So you almost need social sector organizations that can help put that wraparound support around some of these tenants. And you also need investment to get the properties. So the world of social housing and social impact investment all of a sudden becomes really interesting for government that does not have enough money in its coffers to solve the issue of homelessness. Um, and that goes across the board from health inequalities to, you know, funding of certain businesses where, you know, we'd love to see more cultural and creative organizations thrive and get access to funding. But it's not the role just of government. So I think I think they had a, a real progressive approach, significantly right. progressive, I would say, that put them in a position where they, where I'd say they're years ahead of, of other countries in terms of the infrastructure they have for building this more inclusive economy
0: so let's pivot back into the career so you decided to do something in government and yeah i want to get to the brexit part yeah yeah. the brexit (laughs) part (laughs) happened so um
1: i had some really cool experiences where i was you know working for theresa may at the time who's the prime minister and i was her policy lead for social enterprises mainly because her unit didn't have a policy person to lead on that. So they kind of reached into whoever the policy experts were. So, um, so that was really interesting. And I love that experience. And I, then we went into the world of Brexit and they were looking for bodies to work on Brexit and particularly at the time under Theresa May, um, no deal. So just for yep. people out there that are trying to understand what on earth is Brexit, basically, we got married to the European Union. We decided we wanted a divorce and you can, you can leave that in a couple ways. You could just walk out and leave, which is what we refer to as no deal, or you could do a formal process for, you know, a divorce and do something called a post-nuptial agreement where we say, okay, we're separating, but this is kind of the framework. This is what we're going to do with the kids. This is what we're going to do with the house. This is what we're going to do with whatever versus just upping and leaving. So that's kind of a analogy. But if we did have, have to leave in a no deal, Brexit, that would have major implications. So I worked on the implications of that and how do we safeguard certain things so that society and business keep running as it should in a very disruptive scenario. It was totally a contingency plan. Theresa May was completely focused on getting a deal with the European Union to leave in an orderly fashion. And that was pretty fascinating work. Did that for four months. Then I was like, okay, thanks for that experience. Going back to impact investment. Let's see how this all plays out. And then Boris Johnson came into government. Right. And Boris Johnson did not view a no-deal Brexit as a contingency plan. He viewed it as a lead scenario. So all of a sudden, if you had one-day work experience working in no-deal Brexit, you became instantly valuable to those teams. Okay. And so they pulled me back in. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't want to do this again. Um, and so it was it was wild to kind of be behind the scenes of you know living history and living political history. And I was fascinated by it, but...
0: It's still playing out today, right? So I want to ask you just on yeah. a personal basis, what's your philosophical stance on it? Your socio-political view of it. Do you think that this is the right thing for mankind um, and society as a whole on the planet it just feels like you know make America great again we're looking inward you know Brexit sure. it feels like everyone out there in the major economies in the world is about looking inward and, and it's, isn't that
1: interesting at yeah. a time of such globalization and digitization where we're all interconnected mm-hmm. to all of a sudden say okay you know this is starting to feel uncomfortable I feel like I'm starting to lose control I want to look Inward, Or what can our kind of more national approach be and a bit more protective? And I think philosophically, you know, I do believe that we all are interconnected. I do believe in the benefits of globalization. And I also think that there are benefits in leaning into that. I think from a UK government perspective, they took the view that they might be able to negotiate international trade contracts and things like that and more um, on their own terms versus on the European Union terms. So I understood things like that. But then I also saw the challenges like working in inclusive economic growth and talking about a society that works for everybody and not for the few.
0: You hear how that sounds counterintuitive to Brexit, right? So that, that's what I was going to go lean into. Yeah, I mean, you're doing Brexit. And you 're feeding the animal, yet your stance and your view and your experience is kind of inclusive economic growth. It feels like it's it's pole opposite
1: I agree, yeah, and that 's where I think the challenge is is how do you couple those two things? I think there is a way I think that you have to have really strong embedded values of inclusivity and lead your country in that way and Look at your trade contracts and things like that in that kind of sense. Look at immigration in that sense. But, you know, personally, I think that the UK needs a really strong domestic agenda because what we saw in Brexit was that the lived experience to be um, a citizen of the United Kingdom is not the same for everybody. And a lot of people feel left out of the economy, of healthcare, of education, of economic opportunities, um, of community, you know, of being included. And that came through and all of a sudden it kind of took the veil off of what actually is a really big issue. And then what we saw in kind of global politics is this is a big issue everywhere. And then we yep. see with Black Lives Matter that, you know, in the United States, yes, congratulations, you have schools that integrated in the 60s and you had your civil rights movement, but you know what, it's still very embedded and entrenched. And, you know, you see that kind of across the globe, across a number of issues. And so I think that that's where we are today. And um, I hope that this is a time for change and we can all be a smart, small piece of that. You know, I mean, that's for me, that's one of my philosophies. If you can't do everything, do something. Um, but you have to really think about, like, what is your position in this? I do think a lot of people have started to reflect more and think about, like, what is my role in these discussions around inclusion versus exclusion?
0: That's your vantage point. I w- I w- we'll get to the JP Morgan role in a second. But from your vantage point, let's just fast forward for a second. I'd like, as a technologist, as a person that comes from the technology arena, what's your view on technology's impact, you know, in terms of accelerating or highlighting, enabling a lot of the things that you just mentioned there. I mean, we have the folks in the, kind of the Bible and Rust Belt in the United States that feel that the West Coast and the East Coast technologists have bypassed them, you know, new energy techniques and offerings versus oil and coal. And do you see technology being an accelerant, or do you seeing it being something that's kind of wrapping the veil or at least taking it off so we can actually see these things that we haven't seen before?
1: I um, absolutely believe in technology and innovation. I think that we've, you know, and the fourth industrial revolution. I think this is a really exciting time to think about what new opportunities are going to be created for many people. You know, we can't just keep doing things the way that we're doing. And we will progress faster with technology. We will be more interconnected. I've seen just in working in the nonprofit space A lot of these charities were probably five years away from the digital upskilling that they needed to do. They did it in a week because of COVID and locking down and all of a sudden not being able to do your programs and not being able to go into work and not being able to move. Then all of a sudden you have to, you know, adopt technology. And I think that's a really good thing. I also think that there's a huge responsibility and ethics that come with technology and machine learning and things like that. Um, we are human and uh, we are fallible. And just because I think someone is coding an algorithm and designing it, um, I think that there are many situations that are much more nuanced than that. And so there needs to be like an ethics behind some of these things that we're creating and designing. But I do think it's incredibly exciting. And I think even things like, you know, Elon Musk and SpaceX and things like that. I love the entrepreneurial spirit and I love the use of technology. And I love seeing people and the next generation of entrepreneurs taking on what's impossible. Um, So I I think it's a great thing.
0: Okay. So the discussions I've had over the last few months associated with tech is that, We've really got to take a look at its socioeconomic impact on a substrate level. I mean, it feels like we've disintermediated a whole class of humanity. And this is why we're flicking back to nationalism. This is why we're flicking back to inward looking. And because the people that are actually voting those policies into place or those frameworks into place are the people that are disenfranchised. And it feels like technology has such an influence on that, which is a negative influence. They don't, they don't like technology. They don't like the promises that we all believe because they're still in that you're going to a coal mine and saying hey drop the spade and drop the drill you've got to learn how to code
1: i totally agree with you so i was at i was at a conference years ago or something where there was this panel and they said you know every every child should be learning to code in you know the world and there was someone on the panel who is from appalachia which is very low income historically underinvested part of the united states and he was like, in Appalachia, we just got internet like a couple of years ago. Right. And I'm like, this is the reality, right? Like, lest we forget inclusion and digital inclusion and technology inclusion, I'm not going to tell every kid that they need to have their home kitted out with data, with Wi-Fi, with laptops and everything else. Like, hang on a second, that's not the experience of everyone and what are the tools that they have at their hand? And so before we jump to technology is the answer for everything, well, who has the tools in, in their toolkit for that? And, and I think that this is something that you see a lot in kind of, I don't know, whether it's user-based design thinking or whatever you want to call it now. Um, start with the problem because you should not start with the solution that you have. If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. A nail. Mm-hmm. If that's a, the only thing that you have. So if technology is the only thing you have and then you say that's the solution for everything, not for everyone. Yeah, um, so I think that it's really important. And then also, I think that there's a separate discussion around technology where I think that we should be very concerned is this, it's not just a narrative, right? Around like fake news and you're able to consume what you want to consume now. I don't have to, and especially with like, media and newspapers becoming more binary. And it's not just sharing the full picture anymore. I could consume just news that's very liberal, or I could consume news that's very conservative. So that's kind of scary is that you can create your own echo chamber in a time of this amount of technology and this amount of information that's out there, how you choose to consume it and how that information is directed towards you. It's kind of scary, right?
0: Yeah. I mean we're all subject to uh, you know we've got human beings today that already work for algorithms. I mean the Uber driver does not work for Uber. The Uber yeah. driver is subject to the Uber algorithms. I mean the the people at Google the, when I was at Google and we looked in, in Mountain View the big data centers, you know there we saw human beings overseeing not workers in a factory. They were overseeing, you know, algorithms executing on yeah. microprocessors. Um, I always say this and i like to get your response, you know, machine learning for IR Artificial intelligence is a superpower, but it's kryptonite is inequality. What's, yeah. what's your thoughts on that? I think it's a, it could be, we could absolutely have a dystopian outcome. It seems more real now than ever before. Yes, we could do so much, but we could totally and utterly have a dystopian outcome. What's your thoughts on that?
1: I agree in the sense that I think that we need to think about the impact of Machine learning and fourth industrial revolution technology and robotics and things like that and automization. Um, these are wonderful things to make us more productive, more efficient to propel us into the future and what the future holds in terms of health outcomes, in terms of improving societies, improving infrastructure, the way we live, work, play. It's wonderful. There's an ethics to everything that we do though. And let's, let's never take that out of it. Again, another panel that I heard about this kind of technology and ethics, there was the defense minister of France on the panel, and they're using um, a lot of technology and data, et cetera, in terms of warfare and figuring out how you you know, go into certain places and in combat and things like that. And he said, at the end of the day, that red button should always be determined by a human. Because don't let it just give the answers to you. Like You still need humanity, ethics, diplomacy, making some of those ultimate decisions. And I do think there needs to be a responsibility that comes with this and maybe a trail of responsibility. And that's not always super clear. I don't have the answers for it, but I do think that ethics should be um, encompassed in the future of technology.
0: You know, I I speak about it often, and I'm engaging quite extensively with the university faculty, making sure that we do blend the humanities much more, you know, directly, explicitly with the the engineering and the logic folks. Because I do think if we don't, I think we will have more Mark Zuckerbergs in the world, and we don't need more Mark Zuckerbergs in the world. So now you did all the Brexit stuff, and, you know, Boris comes in, you do some of that. How did you land up with J.P. Morgan? How did that come along, and what attracted you to doing that?
1: So I was working on, in, in social impact investment in the UK government. I was working on things like social housing and homelessness. I was working on things like health inequalities and supporting, um, you know, uh, investments into early stage like dementia discovery or, um, supporting access to capital for cultural and creative organizations that have social impact. I loved all those things. I was really interested in gender though, and there wasn't like a department for gender. <laughs> um, there was like a minister for like women and equality, but it wasn't. There were also the minister to something else. And um, I never kind of got my fix on that aspect and I, I was really interested in, in the role of, of gender and, and impact um, and gender issues. And I also wanted to do more international development work. And working for the UK government, I was working on domestic issues, issues that were impacting the UK, that were impacting disadvantaged communities or populations in the UK. But having worked in South Africa, I love a messy problem. You know, I, I like when it's not just about how can we ensure that an HIV positive mother gets access to the information that she needs and the health resources that she needs for her child. Oh, okay. Well, if you now, if you can't get access to clean water, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say you need to formula feed your children. If you're an HIV positive mother, you should absolutely breastfeed. And now you need to have, um, access to the right information clinics. And all, all of a sudden it becomes really interesting. And then geopolitically, international development, I always find really interesting. So I kind of like a really hairy problem to solve. And, um, I wanted to, to get back to that and. I kept my network up with my former colleagues at J.P. Morgan. I knew the foundation was doing inclusive economic growth, which is what I worked on, um, and they were looking for someone to, to work on their gender strategy to cover South Africa and Switzerland and Turkey, these places that I used to work, to look at access to capital and to predominantly help small business growth, particularly for underserved entrepreneurs. And I had done a lot of work on helping grow social enterprises in the UK and helping them get access to the tools that they need to grow their business, um, with a social purpose. And so I liked the idea of, of working with them, um, and met the team. And, you know, oftentimes I think if, if if the content of the work is interesting, I want to do it. If the people that I'll be working with are interesting and I can learn from. I really want to do it. <laughs> right. So that's kind of how it happened.
0: Okay, and since you started there, I know that you've done a couple of things in South Africa. There's the Wits precinct over here you've been involved in. Just run us through some of those things.
1: Yeah, so um, in South Africa, we work with a lot of incredible partners. Um, we, When we think about inclusive economic growth or how can we create more fairer societies, and more equitable opportunities for people to um, improve their lives. We think about it in three ways. How are we helping young people get access to the skills they need to enter into the workforce and to be prepared for the future to improve their lives and livelihoods? Um, how can we help small businesses to grow, to create more jobs, but particularly small business owners that are often underestimated? And how can we help Give families the tools that they need to be more financially resilient. So to improve their savings or improve their debts so that they can, uh, weather through crises or small or large. And so in South Africa, we work with, for example, We Think Code, who I know was yeah. uh, on one of your podcasts. Um, we Think Code is a, is a really interesting organization that does teach young people to be software engineers and, how I'm helping them, I think, <laughs> is to, to try to support over a hundred women to become software engineers in South Africa's oh, growing digital economy. So, um, we worked with We Think Code to create a, um, program that would really focus on women. They do that anyway. We Think Code, I think, was doing a great job. Their results were incredibly strong and great. And I'm really happy that JP Morgan is able to be a funder in that aspect and supporter of that work.
0: What's interesting about We Think Code is the numbers. Because I knew them when they were starting in the very, very beginning. And I just looked at the numbers. I asked Arlene, how many people have you actually trained up and pushed into the job market as programmers? And she said, it's over a 1,000 people already. Oh, yeah. And that's just, a, that's an astounding feat.
1: It is, especially because when you think about the who and the, you know, it's not just, yeah, I love We Think Code because because of of who they attract into their program and the wonderful program that they kind of, envelope these young people around um, right. in terms of the support they have, the training they have, the mentorship that they have, the access to accommodation if they need it, if they can't afford the transport costs, making sure that they have the stipends to do that. Um, you know, they really provide a lot of wraparound support for this two-year program for these young people. And it is a diverse class in terms of men versus women and it's not men versus women it's men and 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 i think that that's great because you're working side by side um you know these young men and women they're all working to become software engineers and they're all very capable and i think that's great rather than creating just a female only um you know group it's really important to have that aspect of diversity within these cohorts
0: Brilliant. So I'm listening for those little triggers. And one of the questions I want to ask you before you get to the Wits thing, which you were going into <laughs> is, what's the framework that you're looking at? So if someone's listening to this right now, and you know, I have a lot of people that from disadvantaged communities that listen to my podcast, you know, I grew up in Eldorado Park, it's a very dangerous place to grow up. And it still continues to be very dangerous. We just had a very big incident over there. So I there's a lot of people when I went back home just in the last few weeks, I've been spending a lot of time there because we had a Down syndrome kid that was shot, you know, by a policeman. And our own Black Lives Matter event happened over there. So I've gone over there and I've done some work over there in that regard. And what I find are so many ideas, so many people wanting to do something, to uplift the community, to, you know, identify opportunities and uh, et cetera. What do you look for? As kind of J.P. Morgan, Colleen, when you look at something, when someone approaches you and says, I want to do this, does it have to be an NGO? And what are you looking for as a framework for an investment? And and how, how does one go about doing that?
1: Yeah, so we look for a few things. First of all, I just want to say I'm, I'm sorry to hear what's happening in El Dorado and in your community. And I think it's great that you're still connected with your community and the issues that are happening there. In terms of JP Morgan and the programs that we fund, so we look for innovation, piloting, or scaling a solution. And so that right there is already interesting because we're not just looking for proven models that work. You know, when you look at innovation, you're trying to say, is there a way that we could do this better or do this differently? Um, and when you're looking at pilots, it's a way of trialing out a new, a new way of doing something. So I feel privileged to be in a position where I can fund projects that are pilots, that are innovations. And I think right now and always we're looking at who we can serve. So it's never just about, are we supporting businesses to grow? And I think you mentioned Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not trying to help Mark Zuckerberg to grow his business. He has a certain level of income, education, background. Um, He doesn't meet, I guess, my diversity or significant challenges enough uh, to say that he needs our philanthropic support. Um, JP Morgan as a bank can serve him in other ways, in other areas. And uh, I know as a firm, we're very happy to. (laughs) But in terms of, of the foundation, we do try to look at what are the ways that we can drive inclusive economic growth in our communities that we serve to improve them? Who are the organizations that are doing interesting things that can show us that they have something that works? And the other thing is that we're not always going to fund a certain organization. So we work with some great organizations, Harambee, for example, uh, Maharishi Institute, we're not going to fund them into perpetuity because, you know, we like to view ourselves as a catalyst just alone, just being at J.P. Morgan Global Philanthropy because we work with interesting partners, but we want to work with other and new partners. So a lot of what we do is trying to grow our networks and referrals. We work with trusted partners and those trusted partners obviously know of other organizations that are doing interesting things to solve the same types of issues that they're trying to solve in terms of how are they preparing young people for the workforce to create more jobs in South Africa? How are you growing small businesses to create more jobs in South Africa, particularly black owned businesses or township entrepreneurs in terms of financial resilience and health? What are you doing to help those that are most disadvantaged to get the skills that they need? So I'm often always introduced to people and talking to people and trying to figure out what works for us and what would create impact
0: Okay, and that's kind of where the funnel of opportunities come from. It's just the constant networking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's always great. I'm not on the ground in South Africa. I'm not South African. I've worked in South Africa. I work with South Africa now. Right. But I really leverage our um, colleagues who work in South Africa. We have a, an office in Johannesburg. We have an office in Cape Town. I leverage the academic community because these are academic and institutional issues that we're looking to solve. And they have a really strong network. And you can often find governments or academia are looking at innovation or looking at the problem in a different way. And then, of course, working with partners that are on the ground delivering solutions. They know who the other actors are in this space, and they can introduce me to
0: them. Got right. it. So okay, so we go, let's go to Vitz quickly. I stopped you just before yeah. you got there on the WITS precinct side.
1: Vitz is an interesting one. Um, we've worked with WITS in the past and doing incubators to support entrepreneurs and township entrepreneurs. What was it two years ago? Now I think it was around September time. There were riots in in Johannesburg, and there was um, gender-based violence that came with that. And one of the things that we're trying to do is what role can we play in women's economic empowerment? and What can that do to um, improve women's position in their societies and communities? And so with VITS, we said, okay, why don't we work on a project for women in the fourth industrial revolution, putting women in a position of power, using this deeper technology, um, creating more role models in communities and working with effectively a pretty small cohort, you know, 25, 25 businesses um, or less. And that was exciting to try to to look at what our role could be in something that's a much deeper seated issue, I think, in society of of violence against women and things like that and how can we uplift women. Um so with Vitz, we've launched the Yabasadi, which is the women for IR, Women Fourth Industrial Revolution. And they'll be using things like robotics, AI, using technology to grow and scale their business. So for example, if you have a prosthetic limbs company, you might be using virtual reality and things like that and robotics to grow and scale your business. Uh, If you have a transportation company, you might need to use more data to integrate to grow and scale your business. And it's really exciting. I'm really happy that we're able to support and fund this program and really proud of the women that are in this program. Again, that did not self-select out, (laughs) that did not think that they had imposter syndrome, that knew that they had something of value that could grow and scale to more value. And this is where I think it's interesting when you think about defining value in like times of economic crisis at JP Morgan Foundation. One of the things that we used to look at when we were looking at business programs that we could support is growth. What equals growth? To us, it meant, are you creating more jobs through your business? Are you increasing your turnover in a time of economic crisis? <laughs> What is our role as a philanthropic funder of small business support in South Africa when everyone's struggling just to stay alive, you know, to survive? And so I think we're sort of transitioning to resilience. Are you retaining and saving jobs? Are you diversifying your customer base? And in terms of like, what does value mean? There's this book called The Value of Everything. Um, and it talks about value creators versus value takers so those that might you know benefit you know i'm a worker i benefit from an economy etc but if you're an entrepreneur you're actually creating and creating additional value and what i'm really proud of the women that are in this program and many of the entrepreneurs all the entrepreneurs that we support is i know that they are value creators And I know that they do it more than just creating jobs. I know that they are creating role models for their communities. They have had to work to get out of their position in life that they were born into. They had to work hard to break the poverty cycle. And they are also reaching down and helping the next person up. So for me, they're value creators in many ways in terms of creating a stronger social fabric and breaking the poverty cycle and also creating more economic opportunities for
0: people. I love that you know that book. There's a quote in that book and I don't know if it's a direct quote, but I'll paraphrase something that I've actually stole out of that book for many presentations that I always talk about, you know, sustainability around a business is number one to make everything that you make hackable extensible and third party augmentable rule number two is to derive less value than you create and then number three is empathy Uh, so i find like a sustainable business is driven by those three things number one is being augmentable creating architectures of human participation in your business second thing is deriving less value than you create and the third thing is building everything on empathy
1: absolutely i love that I really love that. I, I think that, yeah, the world needs more of all of those things.
0: Great pivot, right? Because that's exactly why I wanted to kind of uh, crescendo and talk about yeah. philanthropy in the world today is built by businesses that are generally extractive, right? If you yeah. take a look at Milton Friedman, what he said in the early 1970s, which is the fitness function that JP Morgan, Bill and Melinda Gates, the Rockefeller Foundation, all the businesses work on, and that is you know, to derive more value than they create. I mean, the sole responsibility of a business is to Correct. derive value for its shareholders. That's what he said. You know, Milton Friedman said, that's the responsibility. He gave us that fitness function globally. And it almost feels like so much of philanthropy per day is actually, that scorned That It's looked at as a political tool. It's looked at as something that sure. has an ulterior motive. What's your view on global philanthropy from that perspective? Do we have it? Let me ask it in a different way. Do we have philanthropy today? Because it's a problem being solved by a system and a, a set of fitness functions that established it in the first place. Yeah. When we talk about inclusive economic you know value, all of these things. I mean, these businesses are not built on those principles. What's your thoughts on that?
1: I love this question, and my career is directed towards <laughs> changing this right. this uh, ethos and you know I uh love this topic. I studied international economics. I studied the invisible hand of markets right. and all these things. You're right. A lot of businesses were designed to maximize profits for shareholders. The businesses that will survive, the businesses that will sustain are those that are thinking about their stakeholders not just their shareholders. And I think, a to me, what's been a gold standard, now will it sustain? I don't know, but Paul Pullman, the CEO of Unilever, um, changed their mission, their articles to maximize profits for shareholders. For stakeholders, not just shareholders. So now their board holds their management team to account to what are they doing for stakeholders. Now, how do they do this? How do they integrate it into their business so that it's not just here's our corporate social responsibility team and they're going to do all of our feel good work and our philanthropy and show that we're giving back to communities. But really, we're extractors of value, as you say. So one of the examples that I think was really interesting is they said, okay, how can we look at a problem to solve with our business? And one of them was deaths in under five-year-olds in India. And one of the issues of that is around sanitization. And Unilever has a bunch of products like Dettol, and, um, you know, a lot of like hand washing soap and things like that. So they said, okay, well, why don't we do a campaign to educate Consumers on how to you know wash your hands properly, use soap, etc., in an effort to reduce deaths in age under fives. They were successful on two folds. One, they were successful in reducing deaths in age under fives, and I think they also reached a new clientele of four hundred million consumers. Oh wow. I love that. That's interesting. <laughs> um, I do believe in inclusive economic growth. I do believe that these things can be intertwined. I think that you can create better opportunities for your shareholders by looking at your stakeholders and the communities that you serve. And I do think that if you're running a business today and you want it to sustain, you need to think about that. You need to think about, are you feeding back in to create a strong community? Because if you're just a Great organization, and your community is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Will you be sustainable? Will you right. be able to last?
0: And it almost feels it's like so that's how millennials think today. I mean, millennials are very driven by purpose. You know, what's the purpose? Yeah. yeah.
1: I love that. It's like the rise of the conscientious consumer. And I hope that what we see with millennials is I don't want a pursuit of a perfect life. I don't want what Instagram tells me is a perfect life and everyone's happy. And you just put the snapshot in this point in time. I want the pursuit of a purposeful life, not a perfect life, a purposeful life. And I do think that we are seeing that. And I think that people are educating themselves more in what they are consuming and what businesses are doing. And, you know, I think just yesterday you saw a lot of people go off of Facebook and Mm. um, Instagram to say that you do have a responsibility, Facebook, to, Protect the curated content that's being consumed and some of the hate messages that are being put out there. So, I think it's, I think it's a, a good thing.
0: So, just kind of an ending, I noticed a figure that more than 70% of all philanthropical efforts and organizations in the world have actually been established only in the last 25 to 27 years. So, this area is, is fairly new. Does that sound right to you? More than 70% of formal large philanthropical establishments were only established in the last 20 to 30 years.
1: That does sound right. But one thing I will say about that, and, you know, this is one thing that I feel like one of my lessons learned in the work that I've done and working in disadvantaged communities. I think that's probably, that. I'm sure that figure is correct in terms of formal philanthropic institutions. But you do also have the... Religious and faith community and churches that have been around for many, many, many—you uh, know—for centuries that have had some sort of aspect of like giving back to the communities and serving the poor, etc. So, I do think that that is important to to remember some of those institutions that did have as part of their ethos giving back. Now, I'm not saying that like religious institutions are are flawless or anything like that. We know that the crusades happened and things. Yep. But I think this is kind of like, I guess, off topic, but I remember working in South Africa and going to Malawi um, and being in this community where they were flood-prone and drought-prone. Mm-hmm. And they were growing cotton to pay for food because like they couldn't even get subsistence living or food off the land. But the prices were so high that they... Or the prices weren't, weren't even sufficient for them to get food from the cotton they were growing. And of course, like the land wasn't really productive for that. And some of these kids that I saw, I was like, Oh, I'm Irish. So I have a um, strawberry blonde hair. And some of these kids had, had copper colored hair. And I was like, Oh, wow. You know, I, I was like, Oh, your hair's like, almost like mine. And the woman I was with was a doctor and she was, cause I was working for HIV AIDS maternal health organization, she was like, she's like, no, it's, it's, it's actually a sign of malnourishment what? that they're so malnourished that their hair won't even grow black and like they're black African. And that's why you see that kind of copper hue coming out and, you know, dealing in a place like that, where you have, these women are thinking about like, how are they going to even survive in terms right. of food? And they also have to think about their health now that they're HIV positive and the health of their children And I just thought, like, you know, these stories and these difficulties seem endless to me. Like, what is it that keeps them going, you know? And one of the things was faith. And and I was really, really impressed by and moved by the connection that they had to their God and their religion and that they could take some of their stresses off and put it onto, you know, a higher power and trust that, you know, we're not living the life that we dreamed of, but there is, there is something else. And I think there is some quote from the Bible that I thought was kind of good is, um, man determines his steps, but the Lord determines his path. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really interesting. And like, I don't know, it's something that, that really struck me while I was working in Africa and in South Africa. I think there was a connectivity to land and spirit that mm. is really incredible in Africa. And I think that it makes it such an incredibly special place for people to go to. I know that that was completely a
0: no, tangent beautiful. from
1: your question around yeah, it's beautiful. philanthropic institutions. Yeah, yeah. But um, it just made me think of kind of, faith-based institutions, and then also just faith as a resource in itself.
0: Colleen, last thing, what do you want to communicate, say, to young women that are listening to this right now?
1: So I think that for everyone listening, it's important to empower women because the success and sustainability of our futures and our communities depend on it women's voices and equal role in society and economy will be our measure of progress. So I think that's for everyone. And if I were, you know, I don't know. I think that this is an exciting time to be a woman and keep the progress going, help other women around you, be a role model, seek out role models, elevate role models. I think that's really important. And for me, just Always remember, I think, an attitude of gratitude (laughs) is incredibly important. We all have a lot to be grateful for. Yes, we all have our own challenges. But I think that women are doing incredible things to support communities and create real social change. I believe in the power of a woman. And I also believe in the power of when you give back, you get more. And that goes back to your point around, are you, what was your... Your second philosophy, I think, around Derive businesses.
0: Derive less value than you create.
1: Derive less value than you create. Interesting. Yeah. And I feel that way, right? That's been my experience. When I give back, I get so much more out of it. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> All comes full circle, I guess.
0: Colleen, thank you. I knew you were going to be incredible. <laughs> and thank you for being an incredible woman. Hopefully, this is just a small platform to celebrate all the work that you do. And thank you for doing all the things that you do for South Africa specifically. I'll speak on behalf of all of us over here. Thank you.
1: Oh, no, my pleasure. My pleasure. No, and I can't wait to get back. Thank you so much, Stafford.
0: You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.